Well, good morning. Hey, they called me Pastor Segree, man. That was, this was good, man. That was good. Listen, uh, we're going to be looking at uh, Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And uh, as you go there in your electronic devices or in your Bible, would you guys do me a favor? Would you guys show Pastor Segree some love for the excellent work? They just don't want you to get the big head. Stay humble, man. Stay humble. So uh, for those of you who may not know me, my name is Tito Trovaro, and I have the uh, privilege of serving as the executive pastor of leadership development here at Coastal Church, and I am thrilled to have the opportunity to share with you this morning. So uh, the message of the title of this morning's message is uh, Shaped by the Gospel. Before we go any further, let's have a word of prayer. Lord... Thank you so much for giving us another day. I ask you, Lord, that as we share these brief thoughts, that the realities of the kingdom and the preciousness of your son, Jesus Christ, and the gospel might become more sweeter and realer to us each moment, Lord. I pray that you would transform us, shape us, mold us into the image of your son, Lord. I pray that... You would help me to speak with clarity and accuracy the things that are contained in your word. Remove distractions, Lord, but most of all, glorify your son, Jesus Christ. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, I have two younger sons, Tito and uh, Caleb, and um, about a year ago, they're, they're big boys. They were like on the fifth percentile chart. Every time we would go to the doctor, or they were like above the, the growth chart. And so by ages three and five, they were pretty big. And so they like to play this game when I'm laying on the sofa. They would jump on me and start bouncing on my rib cage up and down. And so I would say to them, you savage beast, you savage beast, get off me. And so uh, days later, after the first time they did this, they said to the daddy, we want to play savage beast. I said, absolutely not. So now in the same way that their idea of horseplay was shaped by my words, our ideas about life, our worldview, our conduct, and our behavior should be shaped by the gospel. Paul ends the previous chapter by stating that some profess to know God, but with their works they deny him being detestable and disobedient, unfit for every good work. So in a sense, he's saying that these people profess to believe they they have received the gospel, but their actions say that they have not. Now, this message today, let me say in passing, it's very instructional in nature. And so it assumes from the beginning that the person receiving this message has received and internalized the gospel. Uh, it assumes, because this is a pastoral epistle, Paul is speaking to Titus, that this person, that the people receiving these words are part of a local body and have the Spirit of God working in their lives. And because this message is so instructional in nature, I want to make sure to state up front that none of this 
happens apart from the work and the transformational power of the Holy Spirit and the grace of God working in our lives. In fact, Jesus said in John chapter 15, verse 5, separated from me, you can do nothing. So as uh, you hear me today talking about the instructions that Paul gives to men and women and young people and pastors, uh, let's keep in the back of our mind that it is in him that we live, in him that we move, in him we have our being, and that we need to lean on him to be able to do these things. And uh, since we're going to be talking about being shaped by the gospel, let's first define what that is. Part I spend most of my days either mentoring uh, men or counseling people. And if I ask uh, 10 different people what the, is the gospel, I can get at least eight different responses. No, not so here at Coastal because we hear the gospel every weekend. The gospel is this, that we were born into sin. The scriptures teach us that we were by nature children of wrath. And because we have this thing called inherited sin, in order for God to be our mediator, to bring us back into right relationship, he sent his only son, Jesus Christ, who was God in the flesh, 100% God and 100% man. He lived a perfect life of obedience according to the law. He was crucified, buried, placed in the tomb, and on the third day, he rose again from the dead to give us the hope of eternal life and to authenticate the claim that he is God. And so now simply when we repent of our sins, we believe the gospel, the substitutionary death on the cross, the core facts of the gospel, and we receive Christ, we are saved. And so it is to that reality that we are speaking this morning. And since we are teaching about the gospel, I would like to start this morning's sermon by reading a couple of paragraphs from R.H. Thune's book, The Gospel-Centered Life. And here we go. The gospel is a phrase Christians often use without fully understanding its significance. We speak the language of the gospel, but rarely apply the gospel to every aspect of our lives. Yet, it is exactly what God wants for us. The gospel is nothing less but the power of God, Romans 1.16. In Colossians, Paul commends the Colossian church because of the gospel has been bearing fruit, bearing fruit and growing among them since the day they heard it. The Apostle Peter teaches us that a lack of ongoing transformation in our lives comes from forgetting what God has done for us in the gospel. Second Peter 1, 3 through 9. If we're going to grow in the maturity of Christ, we must deepen and enlarge our understanding of the gospel as God's appointed mean for personal and communal transformation. Many Christians live with a truncated view of the gospel. We see the gospel as the door, the way in, the entrance point into the kingdom of God. But the gospel is so much more. It's not just the door 
but the path we are to walk every day of the Christian life. It's not just the means of our salvation. It is the means of our transformation. Having said that, let's begin our reading at verse number one. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound the faith, in love, and in steadfastness, steadfastness, excuse me. And here's our first point. Number one, men are called to be serious and intentional about their faith. The verse says that men ought to be sober-minded and dignified and sound in the faith. It is a challenge to us men to be serious about our relationship with God, to be intentional about growing in our faith and living out our faith in such a way that it impacts others. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, Jesus said it this way, So let your light shine before men, that they might see your good works, but glorify your Father in heaven. We ought to be alert and watchful of the gospel in ourselves and in others, and carry ourselves with honor. I almost didn't use the word serious in as part of my point because of uh, it reminded me of most of the pictures that we see in the 1900s. Have you ever seen those old black and white pictures in the 1900s where nobody cracked the smile? Everybody. Uh, and it, part of it was cultural. There were other factors, but it was considered inappropriate to smile. If you smiled in a picture, in some cases, it would be associated with uh, unrestrained or ungodly living. It's almost like if you cracked a smile in a picture, you were considered an ungodly person. That's why if you browse through some of those pictures, people are very stoic. They almost look like they had a bad case of indigestion. But here, when it says that men should be sober-minded and dignified, it is associated with being serious-minded about the Lord and his word and his pursuit of him. In fact, if you read the uh, Old Testament in 2 Chronicles chapter 15, King Asa, who was one of the uh, godly kings in, in Judah, he was so serious about religious reforms, he made some changes in, in, 2, King, in 2 Chronicles chapter 15, verses 13 and 14. Listen to what it says. It says, But that whoever would not seek the Lord, the God of Israel, should be put to death. Whether young or old, man or woman, they swore an oath to the Lord with a loud voice and with shouting and with trumpets and with horns. How would you like one Sunday if Pastor Segree got up and says, we're going to enter into an oath. And if everybody doesn't read their Bible every day and everybody doesn't pray every day, we're going to rock you to sleep. We're going to stone you to death. And, and obviously the, the emphasis is not on the, the, uh, the, the, the killing itself, but the emphasis in how serious they were about religious reform and how serious they were about seeking the Lord. When Paul is writing to Timothy, he says these words to him in 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 2.8, I desire 
that in every place men should pray lifting up holy hands without anger and quarreling. Now, getting back to Titus chapter 2 verse 2, it uses a little phrase there, says, in love. In this passage, it is a plural feminine noun in the original Greek, and it indicates a feast of love and affection. Historically speaking, in the, in the early church, people who had means would hold dinners for widows and for orphans and for the poor. It was an intentional expression of love, which again, it's a challenge to us men to take the initiative, to be involved, to care about Christian brotherly love, to be loving Men, men, we cannot afford to be passive. We cannot afford to abdicate our role. We are called to set the spiritual tone. Men, you are the spiritual thermostat of your house. See, one or two things are going to happen. Either you are going to set the spiritual tone for your house, because that's what a thermostat, that it feels so comfortable here today, because they set the thermostat at a temperature where we can be comfortable and hear the word of God. That's what a thermostat does. But a thermometer, on the other hand, always is responding to the climate. So men, the text is challenging us to be thermostats and not thermometers. Children ought to see us and hear us praying. Our children ought to see us reading our Bibles. I call it the blessed interruption. I'll be in my room praying and, and know that the kids get up way too early in the morning and they knock on my door and say, Daddy, and then they'll ask me for some book. Daddy's talking to the Lord, or I'll be reading my Bible, and the kids will come and jump on my and say, Daddy, would you read the Bible to me? Your, your kids' minds should be loaded with memories of you praying. Your kids' minds should be loaded with memories of you having your face connected to that book we call the Bible. It is men showing love. I remember uh, there's a, a member in our church named Davis Cartwright. He passed away uh, last year of a terrible accident. Um, I remember one time we were in the prayer chapel, and he was telling me a story. And at this point, honey, could you give me that bottle of water over there? At this time in his life, he was in his, thank you so much. He was probably in his uh, late 60s. Excuse me. And so he was telling me about his father and how his father would get up every morning and go into a literal closet because they had a small house. And so the only place where his dad could go would be the closet. And he grew up hearing the voice of his father praying in the closet. This was so impactful to this man. At 67 years old, tears were streaming down his face as he told me about memories that he experienced as a child from his father and hearing his father pray. 
Our kids, our wives should see us reading the scriptures, being affectionate. Listen, men, your, your, your kids should experience you being affectionate toward your wife. When your wife is in the kitchen, you should go and plant a big fat kiss on her and give her a hug. And, and your wife may not be a touchy feely kind of person. It's all right to get punched every now and then. But listen, it, it's okay. But listen, your kids need to see that you are an affectionate man, that you are committed to love your wife. It, the most terrible thing in, in the world is for a child to grow up in a, in a house where two people love each other, but they never see the tangible or the visible representation of it. Men are to be lovers of what is good, lovers of people, lovers of family, but most of all, lovers of God. We are to make sure we create an environment and a culture of affection, love, faith, healthy relationships, both at home and in the church, which brings us to letter number A. Men are called to be steady. Uh, the word steady in this text is the Greek word hupomone. It means to remain under or to persevere. It, it, it's, it's speaking to us men that we must have a testimony of steadfastness or victory. In other words, you have gone through some things in your life and you clung to your faith. You have a testimony. In fact, the book of Revelation chapter 12 verse 11 says, They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, and that they did not love their lives unto Death. Um, as I was thinking about this, uh, pe- this passage and, uh, this part of the text, uh, it reminded me of my, uh, deceased wife, Tracy, how, uh, we, for 10 years, we tried to have children and she had seven miscarriages and we had to do in vitro fertilization and then she had cancer for two years and then she passed away. And I remember uh, during uh, the last stages of, of her life and she she was in, in severe pain and had a grimace on her face. And and I asked her, I said, I, I made the, the I, it was a dumb question. I take, I'm going to, I asked her a dumb question. I said, honey, are you angry with the Lord? She looked at me and she said, what are you talking about? If he heals me, I win. And if I die, I go to be with him, which is a lot better. Don't ever ask me a dumb question like that again. See, for the 20 years I was married to her, she had a testimony that she walked with the Lord. She went through some stuff and I saw her cling to her faith and her clinging to her faith impacted and transformed and helped me grow in my faith. And so here, men, that word hupomone or steadfastness is about, listen, we're going to go through some things. We may go through some sicknesses. We may go through some relational challenges. We might go through some financial challenges. We might go through some difficulties with people that we're in relationship with. But people ought to see us, men, clinging to our faith, steadfastness, hupomone, men, ought to be able to go through trials without vacillating in their faith. Now, uh, only in the um, King James Version, it says it like this. It says, quit you like men 
be strong. 1 Corinthians 16, 13 says, watch you. This is a more understandable translation. Stand in the faith. Be men. Be strong. I sometimes don't always get everything, but it sounded to me like Paul was saying, man up. Men ought to be men. Men ought to act like men. Men ought to dress like men. Men ought not to be effeminate. Wear effeminate articles. Men are called to be men. He said, be men. Be strong. Now, I know that that's not politically correct in pastor's degree. You might have to clean that up next week for me or something like that. But listen, there's nothing, there's nothing worse than men when they don't take their responsibility. Men ought to be men. Have endurance, have consistency in our, in your walk. Have some backbone, not wavering, not unstable, and not easily moved. And then Paul trans- transitions over for from instructing the men to instructing the women, which brings us to verse number three. And the, all the men went, <sighs> Older women likewise, verse three, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanders or slaves to too much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children. To be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husband, so that the word of God may not be reviled. Paul gives some very specific instructions, and they seem lengthy instructions to the women. And he says, listen, the reasoning that he gives, his justification for this I do not want the word of God to be evil spoken of. Paul challenges the women to be respectful, to care about appropriateness, not to be addicted to alcohol, and I would include other substances and things. He also instructs him not to uh, to be slanderers or to say negative and untrue things about people behind their back. Paul goes on to say that women have to care about honor and authority. First, the honor of God in their lives, and then care about being honorable in their homes and in society. Both them and their children. But it's interesting that Paul instructs the women not to be addicted to alcohol, and again, I'll say that includes all other substances and things and bad habits and life-dominating sins. Why does he do this? Because number two, women are called to be disciplers. They are called to train younger women, so they need to be sober-minded and not have their lives consumed with some type of life-dominating obsession. 
Women have a tremendous responsibility of raising up their children, but also to help other women mature spiritually and grow in their faith and in their womanhood. Just like it takes a man to teach a man how to be a man, it takes a woman, a mature woman, an honorable woman, an appropriate woman to teach a woman how to be a woman. Women are challenged to care and to be concerned about the next generation. And, and here at Coastal, and Pastor Segree said earlier, we, we have a specific vision and how to do that. We, we connect, we grow, we serve, and we multiply. So uh, in, in this text, he's really challenging the women to multiply the gospel, both in their children and in the community at large. And, and hopefully many of you ladies are actively engaged in helping other women grow. Now, allow me to give a word of caution for some of you ladies who are biblically strong and uh, strong leaders, because I've, I've had this um, oftentimes comment made to me from, from ladies. It's like, like my, my husband is passive. He, he, he just won't lead. And, and I can't get him to do Bible studies with the kids. And I can't him to do this. And so, um, uh, ladies, I want to caution you to, to pray your men and encourage your men into the man that God has called them to be. And be careful not to abdicate his role. Make sure you stay as the co-pilot and you don't become the pilot and get in the driver's seat. Just a word of caution, something that I see. In the same way, oftentimes men abdicate their role. There are times when this happens that you ladies that are doing such a great job pouring into the kids and have to step in and <coughs> do the praying. and so, so when the guy actually gets there and he wants to lead and he wants to take his role, then you have a hard time letting him. Uh, for some of you guys, and I, I know it seems like I'm going all over the place, but I'm not. Is, is it okay if I speak from the Holy Spirit? And for, for, for some of you guys, you're so intimidated to lead because you say, well, I don't know the Bible and I don't know a whole bunch of theology. And I'm like, listen, who said you had to be a theologian? Just be willing to engage. And maybe your wife knows more of the Bible than you do. Maybe she is more theologically astute than, than you are. That's okay. Be willing to initiate. Be willing to pray. Be present. Take, take the role. But uh, ladies, let the guys lead. So here's another interesting thing that even though the fathers are to bring up the children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, if the child is left untrained, it sheds a negative light on the mother. Proverbs 29.15 says this, The rod of reproof gives wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to the mother. So even though we men are charged to bring our children in the nurture and the admonition of the role, if there is a negative uh, view on the child, of the child left untrained, 
it brings a negative light on the mother because they are the primary caregivers. This is important because even as women are called to raise their children, letter A, women are called to be an example. Not only to train up their children and to teach the children, but also younger women. They are also challenged to demonstrate godliness and the fruit of the Spirit, which he specially says to this, to the older women or the more mature women, he to train the younger women. And when younger women see older women or more mature women, they notice that there is something of, of quality about their lives. And inevitably, you'll wind up having a younger woman say, would you mentor me? And some of you uh, ladies that are more mature and been around for a while and you find yourself, says, I don't know what to do. Listen, I, I go, I intentionally, uh, the, that foyer, that's not a foyer. I call that a fishing pond. I go up to guys, I introduce myself to them, I ask her, says, hey, how did you, how did you hear about Coastal? Have you been through We Are Coastal? Do you have a mentor? Are you in a small group? You don't have a mentor, I'll find you one, or I'll men- I'm intentional about mentoring people. And ladies, I w- being an example and being in, in, intentional about mentoring, true womanhood, listen, to, this is a quote by John Piper, I love this. He says, true womanhood is a distinctive calling of God to display the glory of God, of his son, in ways it would never be displayed if there were no womanhood, end quote. Here at Coastal, we usually have a thought, and it's amongst the staff members, and you no doubt might have heard it somewhere else. More is caught than taught. And when women are an example, when women are living their life to the fullest for Jesus, it catches on. Other ladies catch the vision and they too want to be a part of what's going on and what the Lord is doing in the kingdom. Because like I said, more is caught than taught. When women are doing this, their children grow up watching a godly woman honor their husband, teaching other women, engage in community, loving their families and God well. Then Paul turns from talking to the women to talking to the young people. Now the ladies can... Verse 6, likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. This brings us to point number three. Young people are to show discipline. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22, Paul says, So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure uh, when I read this passage, it reminds me uh, of Joseph, who was a young man who God was using and who God had put his hand upon him and blessed him. And even though some bad things had happened to him, his brother sold him into slavery and he wound up in Egypt. Uh, a woman set his sights on him and tried to do some things that were completely inappropriate. And listen, he, he was so 
dedicated to want to walk with God that he ran away and left his robe behind because this woman was trying to sleep with him. And in the same way, this text is calling younger men to be self-disciplined. And I would say younger men, I would say in general to young people. The, the Bible has a lot to say about young people. Young people are to practice abstinence, abstain from things that will ruin their testimony like sex, drugs, and avoid places and people that will bring into question their commitment to God. Listen to what Ecclesiastes 12.1 says. Remember your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near in which you say, I have no pleasure in them. 1 Timothy 4.12, let no one despise your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in faith, and in purity. If you're a young person, this is a great place for you to get engaged. Many young people are growing and training and using their gifts here at Coastal. But for those of you who may be unaware of some of the things that we have going on here, some of the young people, we have a leadership development program where you can be mentored and go through a series of, of books and discipleship uh, culminating in when Grudem Systematic Theology. We have small groups, we have mentoring, we have biblical counseling, we have biblical counseling training, we have a residency, we have a pastoral track, we have ministry commissioning track for women. There are so many different ways that you can get involved here at Coastal, which brings us to verse number seven. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and your teaching Show And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Paul switches over from speaking to the young people or to the young men to speaking to Titus, who is the pastor of this church, which brings us to point number four. Pastors are to be an example. And those, this is for those of us who are in the ministry. Paul, who is writing this letter to Titus, he is a pastor and he's calling him to be an example, a model of good works and sound in teaching. Listen to what Paul tells another young pastor. First, in 1 Timothy 4.16, he says, Take heed to yourselves and to the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. We pastors are not perfect, and we carry a heavy burden, and many times we wind up taking time away from our families to help other people. And listen, it is not a complaint. We have chosen this life, and we do it with joy. We don't we don't have oftentimes, we don't take the liberties that other people take because of the call of the ministry. Sometimes we don't take certain liberties in our lives because of the call and the weight of the ministry. If you're a pastor here, here's my be best advice to you prioritize your relationship with God. 
Work hard. Love your family well. Make them a priority. Rest well. Get some good sleep. Have regularly scheduled downtimes. Make time to do fun things for you. Whether it's to go to top golf or bowling or biking or even if that's just to do a little binge watching of Netflix. Take time to do something fun for you. Then Paul transitions from speaking to Titus and he makes a comment about bondservants in verse 9. He says, bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative. This brings us to our fifth point. Employees are to work faithfully, have a good work ethic and attitude. Now, we are being called to do good work with a good attitude. The word bondservant used here in some translation uses the word slave. It is the Greek word uh, doulos. And let me give you a little bit of a distinction here. Uh, it was not uncommon for, uh, for servitude or labor to be part of a bartering system. If someone incurred into debt, they would work off that debt. This is the type of servanthood or the type of slavery that is talking about in the Bible. It's not the atrocity that we know about here in the United States. It's not to say, because we don't want to be historically inaccurate, it's not to say that it didn't exist in those times. But that's not the type of servanthood that he is speaking to here. What he's saying, it's voluntary or required. The instruction is to be faithful, to have a good attitude, and to have a good work ethic. The Bible has a lot to say about work ethic. In Proverbs 14, 23, it says, In all labor there is profit. I remember there are times when uh, I was in between jobs, I would always find somewhere to go and volunteer because the Bible says in all labor, there is profit. Ecclesiastes 9 verse 10 says this, whatever you find your hands to do, do with all your might. Galatians 6, 9, which Pastor Segree quoted earlier, don't grow weary in well-doing because in due season you will reap. 1 Corinthians 10.31 teaches us that we are to do everything for the glory of God. Followers of Christ ought to be the hardest workers. Followers of Christ are the ones to get to work earliest and leave the latest. We should have the best work ethic. We should be the most dependable. We should be the ones that are most valuable to the company. Why? Because even if you are not recognized or being not, not being paid for it, Hebrews chapter 6 verse 10 says this, that God is not unrighteous to forget your labor of love. And whatever we do, whether we're doing it in a secular arena or we're doing it in a church, we're doing it with excellence, we're doing it with a good attitude, and we're doing it with good ethics because we're doing it for the glory of God. And this brings us to our 10th and final verse. Not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything, 
they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. It's interesting, he makes a contrast. In contrast, uh, when it was given instructions to the woman, it says, so that the word of God may not be revealed. Here it says that when we show a good work ethic and when we're not stealing, it keeps, it adorns the gospel. And even though this speaks to those who are in the, in, in the workforce, people who are in forced, forced labor or working off a debt, the reason he tells them to do this, and which makes it apply to all of us, not only workers, is because it adorns the gospel. When we do good work, when we are responsible, when we do everything for the glory of God, it adorns the gospel, which brings us to our sixth and final point. I'm going to call the band to come up. We should all endeavor to be a billboard for the gospel. Have you ever passed by some of those uh, advertising billboards that they have a picture of somebody? Well, these billboards are really meant to be a representation of their business. And in verse 10, he says, don't steal, show good faith in everything. In other words, have good character. Why? Because it makes the gospel beautiful. We become billboards for the gospel. And so today we looked at some uh, instructions to the men, some instructions to the women, some instructions to young people, some instructions to those, those of us who work. And we are told what it looks like when our li lives are shaped by the gospel. When our lives are shaped by the gospel, it means that we are enjoying abundant life. It means that we are abounding in peace. We are abounding in joy. We are abounding in the love of God because the grace of God that brings salvation has transformed our hearts. And so as I close this message today, because we were talking about being shaped by the gospel, I want to encourage all of us because even though there's some heavy and very straightforward instructions for all of us in this text. At the end of the day, it is about being shaped by the gospel. Abiding in Christ, abiding in the fruit of the Spirit, in love, joy. Some of you may be sitting here and you don't feel loved. Some of you may be sitting here and you don't know if God loves you or if you are saved. Some of you are maybe sitting in here and you're angry with someone or you're having a hard time forgiving someone or frustrated or upset about something. Listen, God sent his son to die on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. He rose again from the dead to give you joy, to give you peace, to give you an abundant life. Please don't let some sinner, don't let some organization, don't let some person rob you of what Jesus Christ came to give you. Don't look back on your life and say, I spent all that time stressed. I spent all that time frustrated. I spent all that time in angst, worried about people who probably didn't even know you were worried about it. 
let's hold on to the gospel. When we, when our lives are shaped by the gospel, we will experience joy. When our lives are shaped by the gospel, we will experience peace. When our lives are shaped by the gospel, we were, we will abide in God's love and know that he loves us, not think, not believe that he loves us. And so if you are here today and you need to forgive someone, or if you need God to forgive you, if you need to give your life to Christ, or if you are wrestling with some relational issues, or you're wrestling with some issues on your job or in your business, I want to encourage you not to leave this place without doing business with God. The gospel is really enough. We have eternal life. I want you to tuck this phrase in the back of your mind. Whatever you are going through, in the light of eternity, does it really matter? Well, Pastor Tito, you don't understand. They're not giving me my proper due. In the light of eternity, does it really matter? Well, Pastor Tito, you don't understand what they have done to me. In the light of eternity, does it really matter? You have eternal life. Paul said it this way in Romans 8.18, and I'll, I'll, I'll get off the stage. Because the band is like, Moore, you called us up here, man. And you're like, you needed to go. Where's the ham and B3 organ? You know, anyway. <laughs> For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed. Whatever you are going through, whatever you are experiencing, it's not that we're not empathetic. It's not that we don't care. But if you weigh it against eternity, if you have Jesus and your life is shaped by the gospel, you have it all. Would you stand to your feet with me? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to preach your word. I just ask you in Jesus' name, Lord, to help us to live a life that brings you glory. That each passing day, the realities of Christ and the realities of the gospel might become more beautiful to us. We might appreciate the cross more and more as we grow in our relationship with you. And I pray if there's anyone here today who has not surrendered their life to you, who has not trusted you as their Lord and Savior, that they would do it today. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.